0: The world has changed a lot recently, and it will change again. How is your organization adapting? On this episode, Silicon Valley serial entrepreneur Steve Blank on how to pivot quickly to respond to a new reality. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 476. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. So many of us are navigating change right now, an incredible amount of change that uh, really in some ways we haven't seen at this speed in a long time. And it is requiring many of us to think about how we pivot quickly in our work and in our leadership. Today, I'm so glad to welcome someone who is absolutely an expert at helping leaders and entrepreneurs be able to make changes, to be able to learn, to be able to serve customers well, and I know is going to help us to do this better. I'm glad to welcome Steve Blank to the show. Steve is a Silicon Valley serial entrepreneur and academian. He is recognized for developing the customer development methodology, which launched the Lean Startup Movement. He is also the co-founder of Epiphany. Steve spent over 30 years within the high-tech industry and has founded or worked within eight startup companies, four of which have gone public. His Google Tech Talk, The Secret History of Silicon Valley, offers a widely regarded insider's perspective on the emerging Silicon Valley startup innovation. He's also published three books, The Four Steps to the Epiphany, Not All Those Who Wander Are Lost, and The Startup Owner's Manual. Steve, I'm so glad to welcome you to Coaching for Leaders.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
0: I came across two quotes that you've highlighted recently in your writing. One of them is from Friedrich Nietzsche, who says, What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And I've also seen the quote from you recently that this is not a recession we're dealing with today. It's a mass extinction event. I'm wondering if you could say a bit about the juxtaposition between those two quotes.
1: Well, you know, the first quote is simply, you know, we're going to be knocked down, but hopefully most of us will get up in the morning and our, the sun will come up and our families will still be healthy and our businesses will emerge different, but stronger from this event. And the question of how we do that is kind of up to us. And the other quote about mass extinction is the analogy that, you know, the dinosaurs ruled the earth for a couple hundred million years, and there were these little mammal-like things, maybe the size of shrews, that scurried under their feet. And one day the dominant species were gone and the mammals emerged and they eventually became us. The analogy there is you know, traditional companies, some of them have been badly damaged or, or disappeared. And there are new niches opening up for new entrants that entrepreneurs and, and leaders ought to be thinking about, about what new opportunities did this pandemic offer besides all the downsides sides of of having to shelter in place
0: there's so much change happening right now that it is very much a moving target to make any predictions you have such a unique vantage point as someone who advises so many organizations and and especially in the tech space how bad is this
1: well you know it's pretty obvious it's it's bad for places where there was density and duration of people gathering you know restaurants uh, travel airplanes hotels etc you know, also bad for things that uh, required in-person visits. You know, surprisingly, didn't. I didn't think about it for a while, but doctors and dentists along with barbers and hairdressers and whatever, you would think, oh yeah, doctors, they'll have a job forever. Well, those that depended on office visits, those almost went to zero. In fact, to the detriment of some people's health, they were having heart attacks and not even going to the hospital, let alone seeing a doctor. So. A whole list of things have kind of gotten pretty bad. I think we've now kind of lifted some of those restrictions, but to be honest, I think it's going to permanently change some of our behavior, maybe for the good, but certainly those changes in behavior are going to open up new opportunities for entrepreneurs and for existing companies.
0: So many opportunities and so many challenges for many organizations right now. And When we think about pivoting and making change. One of the methodologies that's been so helpful to me, in fact, it's probably the one I rely on the most, is the lean startup movement. And your work launched the lean startup movement. And I know folks in the tech space are familiar with it, but there's also many people who are not in the tech space that have, are just, you know, maybe they've heard of lean startup, but they don't really appreciate what it is. For those who you run into for the first time and they
1: say, What is lean startup? How do you explain it? Well, you know, for those outside the tech space, it's pretty easy is that most new products or new additions to existing products are often made by, I have an idea, here are the features and let's go build it. The whole lean startup methodology is how can we actually reduce the failure rate, new ideas, and it starts with something very simple. Assume that what you have on day one is not a a finished product or service that's going to be grabbed out of your hands and that the biggest problem you're gonna have is where to put the bags of money, but instead just assume that all you have is a series of untested assumptions or guesses. Well, what are you guessing about? Well, you might be guessing about who the customers are. You might be guessing about what features of what your product and service are that they actually care about. You might be guessing about pricing. You might be guessing about how would they like the product delivered physically, virtually, you might be guessing about all other pieces of the, what's called the business model. What resources do you need? What are the costs? What are the revenues? Is it a subscription service or, or is it an outright purchase or, or are you licensing it or is it freemium? All those things on day one, they're just guesses. We used to build products and services by writing down all the features we might possibly want and then sending our engineers or developers or us and built all that stuff, and then shipped it, and then then we would figure out whether people wanted it or not. We now realize that we could put up a wireframe or a PowerPoint slide like now, or put up a fake price list or a fake product sheet, and get feedback as we're getting out of the building and talking to people. That has a special word, it's called a minimum viable product, which or minimum viable service, which is just a fancy word for, as we're testing some of our assumptions, when the key assumptions are, is the same way I want to buy or use our product or service. So why don't we give them a, a taste of what that might look like? The key term that I think probably a lot of people have
0: heard here is minimum viable product or minimum viable service. And yet I think that's a term that a lot of people, even if they've heard it before, they may misunderstand. I'm wondering if maybe you could paint a picture for us of an organization that maybe did it more the traditional way. And then how the approach is different by approaching it from the mindset and actually doing a minimum viable product. What is actually different in the
1: process? Well, first of all, the, the word minimum viable product on its surface, in fact, Eric Reese came up with a name. I originally called it minimum feature set, which is more technically correct, but I thought his name was more sexy. But in any case, it convinces people when you first hear it that says, oh, I understand what it is. It's just my final product with a few less features. And it turns out it's not that at all. Uh, a minimum viable product is whatever you need to show people to learn the most at that point in time. Uh-huh. That is, on the first day, it could just be a PowerPoint slide. You know, later on, it could be what's called a wireframe or kind of a mock-up of the product. And if it's hardware, it could be a cardboard mock-up with some weights in it or dimensions or, 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 or feel or just a look and feel model. And let me give you a good example of the difference between uh, thinking that a minimum viable product was just less features versus where I'm coming from is I had some students, uh, this is way back when drones were kind of a new thing who wanted to put these special scanners on a drone and fly them over farm fields in California to be able to actually look at per plant the amount of water and nutrients that the plant was getting and be able to give farmers a report literally by you know every foot of their farm field. Were they miswatering or does something need more fertilizer or something else? And they thought that that would be a very valuable report for farmers. And so the students left my class and like a good number of them, they actually started a company. And like a good number of them, I get a phone call that says, hey, Professor Blank, we're raising money. Would you like to help fund our company? Great. How much are you raising? And I don't remember that. It was maybe a million or two dollars. And when I was an entrepreneur, that was your entire funding. But nowadays, it's a seed round. And I said, well, why do you need that much money? Well, Professor Blank, we took your class. We're building an MVP. And I said, what's the MVP? And they said, oh, maybe you don't remember. It's a drone, and we have this special scanner we have to buy, and we have to get all this stuff to actually figure out whether farmers want the product. And I said, you know, it's not too late for me to change your grade. (laughs) (laughs) And they said, why? We're doing exactly what you said. And I said, wait a minute, what business are you in? And they, you know, went through the whole soliloquy of, Here's a here's a drone. I said no no no. What product are you selling to the farmers? And they went through a drone. I said what product is the farmer going to see? Oh, it's the report. I said let's think this through for a second. What's the minimum viable product to see whether you have something that farmers even want to buy? Is it the drone? Oh, and they went. Oh, it's the report. Yeah. I said. So how much is it going to cost to to generate a report? And then they went through, well, then we'll need to rent a plane. And then I said, (laughs) well, well, the farmers know when you show them a sample report, whether it's their field or just made up data. And they went, oh, I said, so your MVP just went from a million dollars to about 50 cents. And I tell you the story just to make the point that the MVP at first glance is, oh, they were thinking about a defeatured drone versus no, they just needed to figure out whether somebody cared about the end result. And by the way, one of the side consequences of doing it this way is they discovered when they started talking to farmers that in this case, there were lots of other things that actually flew over their farm fields. It turns out in the United States, there are 5,000 crop dusters. And when they started talking to crop dusters, there's people who spray farm fields for non-organic fields for either seeding them or fertilizers or pesticides. That those crop dusters would have been happy to put that scanner on their planes, make uh, some additional yeah. income, and now all of a sudden, because they weren't so fixated on we make drones rather than we deliver a solution to farmers, their business took off.
0: It it's fascinating, and it's again going on that assumption of okay, we're going to start with the smallest thing. Right. You know the key, the key word there, of course, minimum. Right. The smallest thing we can that gets a conversation going with the customer potential customer right and then you bring that to them you show that to them and that i think that dives in a bit here into customer discovery of validating that and so if we take this example of them then creating this report the sample report what do they actually do what's an example of going in and actually having a conversation like that what are what kind of questions should a leader or entrepreneur be asking And how do you approach that in such a way where you're not biasing what you think is the best way to do it versus what you really want to hear from the customer?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one I used to get wrong myself as an entrepreneur a lot. Because, you know, the first instinct of someone who's passionately kind of got their head around building a product or service is you start with the assumption. And this is almost always implicit, almost always implicit in people's heads who are building something is that you implicitly understand the problem you're solving. I'm gonna say that again. When you're building something, you're building it because you think you're solving someone's problem. Well, how do you know that? Have you gone out and before you even talk about your solution, have you gone out and validated the problem? And so my suggestion is that before you go out and start showing wireframes or minimum viable products, make sure that other people, particularly the ones who you think might pay or use, or or something or engage with your product and service, make sure they see the world the same way you do. And so the first step in customer discovery is validate the problem in the minds of potential customers. And that's just getting in front of people and saying, hi, I'm building X. I'm not here to sell you anything. I've heard you were the smartest person in this business industry segment, et cetera. And I'd like just to have 10 minutes to ask you you know, whether the problem we're working on is valuable to you. You're going to discover all kinds of new things. They might say, "Yeah, it's kind of valuable," but then you're going to ask, "Is well, in in the rank of you know problems, where's it rank?" Oh, it's number forty-seven. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, I thought you said it was a problem. Well, it is, but you know, I got these other. And then you ask, "Well, what are the problems you pay to solve?" Oh, I would pay to solve these top three. Would you pay to solve number four and five? Nah, we only solved the top three. Now you've kind of got a bounding box to either validated your understanding of the problem or says huh, maybe I'm talking to the wrong customers, so let me try other people, or maybe my initial assumptions were incorrect. The next step is, let me get out, and now that i figured out I'm working on the right problem, is talk about how do they solve it today? Not about my product, but how do they solve it today? And you'll get into discussions again in different hierarchies of how valuable the solution is. Yeah, they have a, first of all, some people won't even know they have a problem, but the ones who do, you go, well, how are you solving this today? And people will go, nah, it's not that important to solve. But what you're really looking for is the next level of But people go, oh, we've been actively looking for a solution. This is really important. And the ones that are really interesting is, are, and we've tried to cobble together piece part solutions of either entertainment or service or, or some technical product ourselves. And that's when you go, huh, well, if you had a, something that actually solved this and, you know, that kind of looked like this, but without showing them anything, would that be of interest? And they might say, yeah, but it needs to be purple or it needs to be this size. Or So without exposing what you're doing, because you're going to be wrong, they're kind of teaching you about the characteristics of the solution. And then and only then, after you've done both problem validation and solution and need validation, you start going out and saying, well, we've heard from others that this is a valid problem. Stop, listen, yes, okay. And that people have been looking for a solution that does this kind of thing. Stop, listen, yes. Well, you know, we have something that kind of looks like this. Does that make sense, Dave, as a process? Yeah. So
0: that's, to go back to the farm example, that's when the sample report shows up, right? But what I'm really hearing you say clearly is that's a second or third conversation. The first conversation is... I'm going in and I'm asking a bunch of questions, and then when I'm listening to those questions and I'm being really curious, and instead of me coming in with, hey, here's a report, what do you think? I'm coming in with a list of questions, and I'm being curious about what I hear, and then I'm going down that path and I'm finding out what problems people really have, how are they solving them today? And then that second or third conversation is, that's maybe where the sample report comes in. Or maybe it doesn't because those conversations take me in a different direction and I either decide this isn't viable or I show up with something that's really different based on how those conversations have gone with the people in that industry.
1: That's right, David. Entrepreneurs, because they're driven by passion, want people to love their product and idea. And so the... The danger, and I used to fall victim to this all the time, is to go out and show people what you're building or what you're thinking of building and say, here, here, look, don't you love it? Don't you want to buy it? And it turns out that's not the first step. That's probably about step seven rather than step one. Excellent. The
0: next step as people are really looking to learn is rapid testing. What does rapid testing look like?
1: Well, one of the things that is radically different now is that you could separate out shipping a minimum viable product versus shipping a completely finished fancy product with all the cute packaging and the owner's manual and all that other stuff, because the goal is not to perfect your new product or service, it's to get it in the hands of customers as soon as possible so you could test product market fit. That is, you're trying to see whether people love it, even in its buggy and unfinished state. And you want to do this quickly, or else you're going to fall into the trap of, no, I need to add this one more feature, or I need to make sure that, you know, all the, all the packaging is right and whatever. That's different. That's shipping a finished product. Shipping multiple MVPs allows you to get rapidly, allows you to learn rapidly of what the finished product should look like. And, and I think that distinction is incredibly hard and extremely hard in large companies that are just only have like a, a one and a zero view of the world that says either we have you know nothing or we're now have first customer ship and stuff is coming off the, the production line this intermediate step of being able to to get in people's hands minimum viable products kind of is hard for traditional product managers or organizations to understand we're not putting our brand on something that we say is done. We're putting things in the hands of people who have agreed uh, that, yeah, I'd like to try something early on. And and yeah, you might even be charging for it or you might be giving it away for free. I tend to make people pay for it because then you'll get real feedback of, you know, no, it's not finished or whatever. And you could control how many people have access to your MVPs. But the idea is rapid testing, lots of MVPs, And they incrementally will get better as you get more and more feedback.
0: So if we go back to that report example again with the farmers, the testing would be, I'm thinking it's not the hardware that goes on the plane or the drone or whatever. It's the assuming the validation and the the customer discovery has worked and it turns out a report is valuable. It's starting to do some feedback and testing of what does that Final product look like that the customer is going to get. What does that report look like? What's better? What's worse? What's useful? If people pay for it, you know, what are they frustrated by that they're not hearing? Is it that kind of a sure? Lens? And,
1: and it also ends up you'll discover adjacent needs and maybe different follow-on products. For example, they also discovered that the frequency of these reports depended on the crop. Some crops it was fine to have the report once a month. Some places needed every couple of days. And then what should they do about water and fertilizer? was there something specific that needed to happen? How much water? How much fertilizer? That was a different report. And then later on, as the drones got better, there was an opportunity to say, well, could you drop fertilizer on specific sections of my field rather than me having to reconfigure some plumbing in the field or get a tractor out or something else? So it opens up all kinds of opportunities to learn more about, are there other things that people would buy? Were we not focused on the on the one thing that had value. And uh, it turned out their business ended up to be much more interesting than we're building drones with a scanner on it.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating, the technology that that, that's even possible. The rapid testing, how many iterations does that go? And when do you know you're getting to the point of what you call refining your offering?
1: I have this phrase that says, uh, when they grab you by the collar and say you can't leave their office, (laughs) you've gotten validation. Or and, and I'm not being facetious. I mean, it's it's when you get enough positive responses, and to me, just to be clear, the mistake I used to make is uh, is people would say, "Hey, this is great. Why don't you come back when it's finished?" Happy to talk to you then. Thinking I got a positive response, rather than realizing I had just been thrown out of their office. <laughs> positive uh-huh. responses, right? So, oh yeah, because remember again, if you're an entrepreneur, any like. Nice words are what you need because you haven't been getting any. So you tend to fall into the trap of, oh, they're a a customer. No, they're barely a prospect. The only person who's a customer early on is someone who says, yeah, I get it's not finished, but this is so important or so exciting or so whatever, whether it's entertainment or solves a problem, you know, I'll pay for it now. And for me, the only type of validation that's useful is I'll pay for it. If you're not going to pay for it, then thanks. Uh, let me get back to you when I work through my stack of people who do want to pay for it. And if I can't find anybody who wants to pay for it, then I really haven't found product market fit yet. And again, there are corner cases where you might have to do some more demos or you might have to do you know, some testing. But to me, ultimate validation is either payment or use or as early as possible. And um, you know, you, you, getting this fast feedback, particularly from people who paid for it, will improve help you improve what's working and tweak what isn't. And so because you have engaged early um, customers on MVPs, they will give you the most immediate and valid feedback you could get.
0: I think about what we've just described in this conversation of this entrepreneur going through that process. And I compare that to Someone who might have an idea to do something like this and set up a drone in a lab somewhere and build the product, never talk to the customer, and then show up on the doorstep of a farmer with a drone and having spent, like you said at the beginning, millions of dollars invested in that a year or however long, and the difference between those two processes is Unbelievable. And yet, a lot of organizations still focus on the how do we get everyone in a room, not talk to any of our customers really, spend it six months to a year of developing a new idea. And then, you know, they have really mixed and poor results a lot of times when they come out the door.
1: Right. And what's unfortunate, and I'm saying that smiling, is sometimes they get lucky and people say, see, you don't need any of this process stuff. You could just kind of sit and and, and compute all the possibilities. Though I kind of remind people, you know, while you might be the smartest person in the building or in your conference room, it's really hard to imagine you could be smarter than the collective intelligence of potential customers. And so that's what the process tries to capture is, how do we capture all the feedback we would have gotten? So imagine, take your example, you built it in the lab, you show up after a year, you will be getting feedback, but the cost of, of changing now is orders of magnitude more expensive than if you would have got those, that feedback they painful to hear in the first couple weeks. It's not that you won't get the feedback. It's just that the cost, you know, you'll fire your first VP of sales, that engineering will complain. We invested all this money in features one, one through nine, and they only care about feature 11 and 14. And, you know, all that stuff has gone wasted. That's what this eliminates. Yeah, it, it's, it's a much more efficient process with one caveat, though. Everything we described works in existing markets, which is a fancy word for saying customers already exist. They understand the market. They know what you're building. But how do you do this when you're creating something that just never existed before? That is, you can't ask people about what feature do they want. They don't even know the concept of this new service offering. Yeah, And that still requires customer discovery and validation. But instead of you asking people, do you want this 10% faster when they have no kind of baseline? It requires you to do something a little more sophisticated, and that is to understand the day in the life of the customer now and what's it going to be like in the future when your product or service is there? What's going to change? Is there anything else that needs to change for them to be able to use it? Is it like they need to be comfortable with technology that doesn't exist yet or they need or their behaviors need to change, etc.? Why I mentioned that is that this pandemic has created an opportunity. For products or services that would have taken years or decades for people to imagine, we've all been forced now to go online and not have to imagine what a virtual world looks like. We've been living it. We using Zoom for education and medicine and, and business. And you know, if somebody would have said is, Well, let's imagine a billion people who have used online stuff, people would have laughed and said, Well, that's never gonna happen. And so this kind of has created an opportunity for new business models, not just modifications of existing ones. Does that make sense,
0: Dave? It does. I'm thinking about what you said earlier, your past students coming to you and asking your advice or asking your validation of what they're doing. And you must have a lot of those conversations because of your work and your wisdom in this area. I'm so curious, for the leader for the organization that's never really thought this way, has never really thought about handling things through the Lean Startup or doing using a minimum viable product, and who is then able to shift and actually do it and actually go through, maybe they don't execute it perfectly, but they actually do make a shift and they start to do this. What's one thing you'd invite people to do as a starting point that would actually get them down the path of thinking differently and being much more customer focused?
1: I would tell them, number one, don't adopt a religion without running it as an MVP. That is, if you're running an organization with multiple projects. Why don't you just pick one and allow that team to go off and actually talk to customers while the other teams go through the traditional product management product launch price process? I think you'll probably see a quantitative and qualitative difference in, in the results. That is either in you know less waste in, in, in people or money, and more importantly, better results in sales and profits. Once you do that, I think I think having some evidence that you've just run an A/B test will convince you and leadership above you that perhaps this is a process we ought to go through. The one thing I, I and my students ran into early when we developed this methodology was the wrong way to do this was to evangelize the methodology itself. No one wants to hear people drone on about the theory of getting out of bed. I mean, show me the results. And if I'm in, I'm a business leader, I wanna know why this is, because it's different why is this better? What's it giving me that the traditional model we've been doing for a hundred years in building companies is not the most efficient way? Show me something better and show me the results. Does
0: that make sense? It does. Pick one place to start, get some data, find out what happens, and then you you go from there. I love it. Steve, this has been so helpful. We're going to direct folks to your blog at steveblank.com. You are doing tons of writing right now. You do, of course, always, but especially now on helping leaders, entrepreneurs to navigate this time. So we're going to get that all in this week's weekly leadership guide, along with some of the key articles that Steve has written in the last few weeks that'll help folks uh, who are making transitions right now and doing pivots. Steve, before I let you go, one of the things I love to ask experts who come on the show is about just your learning, your own thinking, your own uh, process of getting feedback and learning from the folks you teach and work with. In the last year or two, as you have been working with folks, as you've continued to do your thinking and your writing, what have you changed your mind on?
1: Well, uh, I think the biggest one is this uh, notion of being able to do fairly adequate customer discovery via uh, video conferencing, whether it's Zoom or anything else. My whole thing was you need to get out of the building. And when I said it, I meant uh, physically. And there's still huge value in being able to see what's on people's desk or hanging on their office or what kind of coffee cups they have with whose logo. And, you know, are they in a strip mall or the 47th floor with a great view? All that context, all that body language, extremely important. But it doesn't mean that the first meeting for discovery can't occur via video conferencing. In fact, I'm now coming to the conclusion that's probably a waste of time to have the first meeting in person if it's more than a 15-minute drive. Now that we've all become acclimatized to Zoom and, and the other video tools, I would probably say you could be much more efficient for the first meetings by doing customer discovery online. Now that's, a again, not a major shift, but uh, I think I've run them, and my students have run a ma- major A-B test, not by choice, and, and found that the, the data has come back kind of interesting. You could do a lot more of those first meetings just by sitting in your, in your building or conference room.
0: Steve Blank, thank you so much for your wisdom. I'm grateful for it. And let's get more folks thinking this lean startup methodology. I'm really uh, excited for folks in our audience to dive in on this.
1: Thanks for having me, Dave.
0: Lots of great resources on Steve's website, including some recent articles that will support you in making pivots. I'm linking to a number of them in the episode notes. It'll also be in the weekly leadership guide this Wednesday. In addition, if this conversation was helpful, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 318, Ideas Worth Stealing from Top Entrepreneurs with Dory Clark. Many of you are familiar with Dory's work. She has just done some amazing work on helping people to discover their brands, uh, helping them to utilize ideas well, and uh, she researched a number of the top entrepreneurs and found out what is it that they're doing well that we can also benefit from in our work, and whether you're an entrepreneur or not, there's so many ideas there that are worth stealing, especially at this time where a lot of us are being really called to think a lot more around innovation and change and what's next, as we talked about today. So that's episode 318, if it's useful to you. Also recommended is episode 381, serve others through marketing with Seth Godin. Seth's probably uh, the most important voice on marketing of our generation and has helped so many leaders and organizations think about marketing well, thinking about serving people authentically. I follow his blog and his work regularly and his podcast. He has some wonderful lessons for us on getting the word out there in the world and how to do that with integrity and respect. Episode 381 is where to go for that. You also heard Steve mention Alex Osterwalder and his work, and he was on the podcast recently talking about how to build an invincible company. So many of you told me that that conversation was helpful as well. It goes right along with this conversation as well. A wonderful compliment. If you haven't heard it, certainly check out episode 470, How to Build an Invincible Company. And then finally, I'd recommend a journal entry that I posted a while back with the title, If You Build It, They Will Come. That is a, a phrase from the movie Field of Dreams from many years ago. It is also a mantra that a lot of entrepreneurial folks have taken on and said, If I build it, they will come. It is a huge lie in most cases if you build it they will not come unless you have done the work we've talked about today and many other things along the way too more details on that in that entry on Dave's Journal. will have that in this week's episode notes as well. All of those you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you have not been there before, it is a great starting point for accessing all of the entire library since 2011, searchable by topic. And when you go over to coachingforleaders.com, you can set up your free membership to get access to all of that. It includes the weekly leadership guide that comes every Wednesday from me. I write the guide each week. I'm finding throughout the week the best articles, resources, other podcast episodes, videos, things that I think will serve you in your leadership development and tie in with the things that we've been talking about here on the show as well. In addition, you'll get access to the entire library, searchable by topic, my book notes, the member casts, so much more inside the free membership. Coachingforleaders.com is where to go to set that up On the website. Next week, I'm glad to welcome another entrepreneur to the show, Pat Flynn from Smart Passive Income. Some of you may have heard of him before. He is going to be teaching us how to handle a layoff. It's part of his story as well. So join Pat and I next week for that conversation. Have a fabulous week and I look forward to seeing you back next Monday. Take care.